Good morning. morning. It's great to be with you today. Our scripture lesson, I'm going to read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, and then uh, the last section of Romans, chapter 16, 25 through 27. I'm not sure if I gave you the scripture reading for the Old Testament. You're shaking your head. So we'll have to do it the old-fashioned way and just listen. Isaiah chapter 40 is such a pivotal chapter in the prophecy of Isaiah. It's um, the beginning of the book of comfort for the children of Israel who are to be sent into captivity. And here is this great comfort that awaits them. Isaiah uses a word in the beginning in the Hebrew that has the idea of give breath. Give breath, Lord. We need that strength that comes from you. So let's hear God's word, Isaiah chapter 40. We'll read the entirety. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the, its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor is beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, 
He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable, he gives power to the weak, to those who have no might he increases strength, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's holy word. And then our passage in Romans this morning, chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this morning and for calling us together to worship you. Through your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit who abides in the hearts of each of your children, Lord, may your glory indeed be manifested in our midst today. May you be exalted in uh, the uh, reading and and the uh, hearing of the word preached today. Feed us, Lord, with your word. Feed us at your table. Lord, help us to go from this place refreshed, knowing that we've been in the presence of the living and triune God. We do thank you, Lord, for this anniversary as we recognize that at last Roe v. Wade has been overthrown. We breathe a little sigh of relief and yet know that this evil still abides in our nation. But Lord, continue your good work, we pray. Make your your church to be the salt and light that we should be. And Lord, refresh us now and strengthen us for the callings that you have upon each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you and to open the Lord's Word for us today. Uh, Nancy and I uh, are often here when we are on vacation, and uh, so you're our vacation church. (laughs) We come here and relax and really enjoy uh, the fellowship here. Um, Some of you have perhaps made the mistake of thinking that I'm on a personal vacation now, I have resigned my call at Westminster, and for some reason, some people have taken that to mean that I have retired. Well, news of my retirement is greatly exaggerated, so I've not retired, but I am taking a break from the ministry for a little while, and I appreciate your, um, your prayers for, for me and for my family. We're looking today at the topic of uh, perfect, uh, perfectly secure from Romans chapter uh, 16. And 
he asked the question, how do you end a book like Romans? Well, here it is right here. This is a glorious way to conclude this magnificent book that has done so much good over the 2,000 years since uh, it's been uh, written and given uh, to us. It is the glory of God. It is a doxology with which the apostle concludes under the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the third doxology, if I count them correctly, in the book of Romans. We think of the doxologies that are in Romans where our minds naturally run to the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depths both of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. That's a glorious doxology in the pivot of of the book of Romans, where we go from the doctrinal to the practical, and then Paul takes us in chapter 12 to um, living doxological lives, living to the glory of God, and to living uh, as sacrifices unto the Lord. There's actually another doxology in the very first chapter, as Paul is outlining all of that muck and evil that is in the, the, the hearts and lives of especially the Gentiles, he, he pauses in the midst of it, and in verse 25 says, they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. He stops in the midst of it and offers this doxology of the ever-blessed creator. But this final word, this final doxology, we see is built around the establishment of believers. In the uh, New King James and the New American Standard, it reads, Now to him who is able to establish you. The NIV and the ESV, I think, are weaker when they say strengthen you. There's other great Greek words that have the idea of strengthening, um, the idea of being fixed, of being established, of being founded and grounded is the idea behind this particular word. But it's still to the same point that this doxology is built around the establishment of us. And that is a staggering thing if you pause to consider it. We might think it more likely that God would establish angels who were created, as it were, in heaven, uh, that they would be uh, fixed there with their feet upon that golden pavement. These glorious, powerful creatures, certainly God could establish and fix them. Um, But at the same time, we recognize and know well that even those angels had their own fall from heaven. There were those that were not established, that there was this fall before the fall, in the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan, and those who were with him. These were not established, but here we find in our text the gospel that establishes poor, weak, fallen, broken, sinful men and women. That's staggering, that God could keep such weak creatures as ourselves. God is in the business of establishing dust. Who thinks of dust? Who cares about dust? That's the great contrast, as we read in Isaiah 40, between the Lord and us. And He has committed Himself to establish His people. Who's concerned with dust? The Lord of glory. That's who. He's in that business. He counts your dust as precious in His eyes. So we see that all of this bewildering and rich doxology in these last three verses is built around your being built. It's built around your being established and fixed and planted. 
Each and every believer can find himself or herself as a stone strongly fitted into this doxology, this glory to God in the highest. Each and every non-believer should find himself or herself wanting this above all earthly wealth or stability. To be established means to be steadfast, to be fixed, to be immovable, to be firmly planted. Uh, This is a word that is used a couple times in the book of Luke, where you find Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a very pivotal verse in that gospel. As Luke builds his gospel around this idea of Jesus must go to Jerusalem, and the rest of the book is, as it were, built around that. It's also used in the 16th chapter of the great gulf that is fixed between Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham above and the poor rich man in torments below. So this word describes this heaven and hell difference. God fixes the believer eternally. You are not like the grass that withers, uh, but are the planting of the Lord. You are the tree with roots that can not be ripped up or shaken. Your life is hid with Christ in God and cannot be moved. No matter how weak you are in yourself, your strength is not yourself. It is the Lord of glory. That's why Paul could say, when I am weak, I am strong. It's actually a good thing to know your weakness, not to cover it, not to uh, ignore it. We are flesh. We are frail. We are feeble creatures, unsustainable by creaturely means, and yet this world is filled with those who are trying to do that very thing. All we are, as the the great rock group Kansas says, is dust in the wind. How we need this stability. Look at the world in which you and I live. That's what they're searching for, at least part of it. And yet we're tossed about by the winds of our economy, Inflation, we have wars and rumors of wars, disease, floods, famines, bad leadership, every form of evil. We are a fickle people and easily blown over by the slightest breeze. But these things, as great as they are, the miseries, the the trials of this life are small in contrast to an even greater problem, and that is the vertical versus the horizontal, our relationship with God. We are under God's wrath as his enemies. And that's where the gospel changes everything. That's where the gospel establishes us. Jesus does not break the bruised reed or extinguish the smoking flax. And this doxology is celebrating that change. That change which Paul has been teaching now for 16 chapters regarding the power and the righteousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell? The gospel's fix is greater than that gap, as we sang earlier today. His grace, his love is greater than man's sin. Do you today know that you deserve the wrath and the curse of God? Do you know that it is a mercy that we are sitting here today instead of sitting in hell? Do you realize that there are people in hell right now who have less sins than you? What's going to stop you from going there? But here's the good news, that there are people in heaven 
who have more sins than you'll have. Because sin is not the absolute determiner. It's the grace and love of God. Oh, the stability. Oh, the surety. Oh, the security. Oh, the certainty. Oh, the guarantee and the warranty of salvation found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And you, believer, are His. You are in His bosom. You are in His hand. You are in His covenant, His bond. You've been brought over from this wrath into His grace and His, safe, and his safety. Now, it's this text then that explores these items. And our first point then is, is, is that it is the God Himself and God alone who can do this. When it says, now unto Him who is able to do this. Unto Him who is able to establish. This per- first point talks about the perfect security is divine. It is from above, not from ourselves. It's from this all-able and all-wise God. The God who reigns, as we heard earlier in the call to worship, who is clothed in majesty, who's firmly established the, the earth that it cannot be moved. In the book of Job, it talks about how the Lord has established the stars, the Pleiades and, and, and Orion, that they go in their courses. He is the one who establishes the world that we see all around us. He is the one that lifts up the floods, and He is the one that stills the waves. His throne is firmly established from of old. He is from everlasting. God's ability looks nowhere else but to Himself. He is a self-sufficient, self-sustained God. And all of His attributes then are enlisted to the saving of we dusty souls. His omnipotence, for instance. He is mighty to save. His omnipresence. He, He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. His unchangeableness. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His righteousness, His justice even is for us now. His love, His grace, His patience. But we find another attribute singled out here as Paul concludes this doxology. This God who is able is all wise. The only wise God. That's singled out. Who through His Son is able to establish you. Wisdom is doing the right thing in the best way. That's the best definition I have for wisdom. Wisdom is doing the right thing in the best way. God himself in his son has become that best way. The only way to the Father, who is himself, Lord Jesus, full of grace and truth to the saving of a great host which none can number. Now this divine ability of God flows into Paul's next phrase. And what we're going to do is just march our way through this passage when he continues, according to my gospel, you'll be established and the preaching of Jesus Christ. I take those two items together. Perfect security is next in the gospel preached, that Jesus is the gospel. Divine establishment, now gospel establishment. What is it that saves us? It's Jesus in his gospel. Paul doesn't merely say the gospel of Jesus Christ, of which Paul is not ashamed from the beginning chapter. No, but he says the preaching. The preaching of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, in part because it was through preaching, it was through the ear gate that man sinned. 
Satan came and began to speak to Eve and eventually saw the fall of both the wife and the husband. During the English Reformation, there was a famous uh, preacher by the name of Hugh Latimer. He was later burned at the stake, and he was a profound preacher. And on one particular occasion, he was preaching to a group of ministers, and he began to talk about preaching in England. And at one point, he stopped and he said, do you want to know who the greatest preacher in all England is? And if you ask a minister that, you're going to have his attention. And all these ministers start leaning in and going, who's he going to say is the greatest preacher in all of England? And he stopped and he said, the greatest preacher in all of England is the devil. And that just stood everybody up, still stands us up to this day. <clears throat> um, the devil is so effective. The devil is the greatest preacher ever. He still reaches the hearts of men so effectively He knows what moves us, what leads us into his bondage, into his kingdom, and he knows how to seduce the best of men, how to seduce us and our children. The devil preaches every day to the ears and souls of all mankind. And so the question is, who can compete with a fallen angel? Who can out-preach him? Or as Spurgeon put it, How can we possibly defeat such a great and roaring lion? And of course, Spurgeon had the answer. How do you fight a lion? You get a bigger lion. And that's the Lord Jesus himself. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is far greater than that false lion, the devil. Jesus' preaching pulls men up by the roots and transplants them with a new nature, brings us into his new kingdom of grace and of love, Our feet now are are established upon an unshakable rock, an eternal rock, and that rock is Christ. (coughs) Preaching is not just about words or letters or syllables. It is Christ himself declaring himself to sinners and saying, Come unto me. I will give you rest. And he does, and oh, how he does. It's an amazing thing. It's the most blessed thing. Gospel preaching heralds the glad tidings of great joy that we hear all throughout the book of Romans. What is the gospel? Well, we could go back and re-preach the whole book of Romans. It's so focused upon that good news. But it's especially about grace coming into our lives and reigning. I believe that the pivot of the book of Romans is actually found in chapter 5. That where death before reigned over us by sin and the law... Now grace sits as king in the throne over your life and mine, and that grace breaks out into two directions. There's the grace of righteousness and forgiveness, and there's the grace of power and of a new life. It's what the theologians have called the duplex gratia, the double grace. We are saved by our sins being pardoned and a righteousness imputed to us, and we are saved by God giving us a new heart, and a new life in him. And whenever you say the gospel is only one or the other, you get in trouble. Lutherans will emphasize, till the cows come home, the idea of of, of forgiveness of sins. And during the Great Awakening, that's all Whitfield and the Wesleys were preaching on was the new birth. Now, people needed to hear about the new birth. 
Somebody asked Whitfield one time, why do you guys always preach about being born again? And his response was, because you need to be born again. That's simple. Well, we need both. Both of these are, are, are the gospel and flows from Jesus um, himself. So, so that's what the, the whole great book of Romans is, is pointing to. Each chapter opening up this fact that we have a righteousness of God, not according to our works. A righteousness, as Bunyan said, as he thought it one day, he said, I have a righteousness that is in heaven. I have a righteousness that can never be taken away from me, never touched. I am righteous in Christ. And then the rest of, from chapter 6 on speaks about we have this risen, once for all crucified, and now um, abiding with Christ life that unfolds in chapter 6, goes on and talks about the struggles in chapter 7. Um, we, what an imperfect life we have. Often disappointing, but at least it's life. At least we're struggling. That shows life. And then, as uh, uh, Derek Thomas says, we come to the best chapter in the whole Bible, which is Romans 8. So, the gospel and no other. The apostolic gospel does all of these things. There is nothing in science or philosophy or astrology or the things of history that can, can do this. And this is otherwise hidden unless God reveals it to us. And God has. He has come and He has spoken to us in these last days in His Son. That's Hebrews chapter 1. So that's our third point. Paul continues from talking about this preaching of the gospel of Jesus. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. We have perfect divine security from God who's able. We have perfect gospel security through the preached gospel. We now have a perfect Bible security. The gospel is both so new and so old. It's from before the foundation of the world. It was foreseen by the prophets anticipating these last days. And now we have come to the days of Christ. We have come to Anno Domini, year of our Lord. The Old Testament, then, is a Christ-centered book. It revealed Christ and His gospel coming to the whole world in its various prophecies and, and, and promises and its types and shadows and so forth. It gave us the gospel largely in pictures. There are times in the Old Testament where you almost have a New Testament quality about it. How can you read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 and not feel that you're standing at the foot of the cross? I remember there was an instance where somebody was witnessing to a Jewish friend and they read Isaiah 53 to them and the Jewish friend said, but I don't believe the New Testament. And he said, it's the Old Testament. <clears throat> but the Old Testament was not so clear on understanding the how these things would come to pass. They saw the glorious kingdom of Christ coming, but how that would happen was not so clearly laid out. So what's the up upshot here? It is that your stability, Christian, depends on nothing less than the eternal, unchangeable word of the living God. You don't rest in anything less than that. God has not trusted His uh, saving of you to any creature, even to angels. Paul himself said that if an angel comes with a different gospel, let him be accursed. 
So understand something. You are not to trust your everlasting soul to anything less or other than this foundation. We are especially not to trust our souls to the traditions of men. And this, I believe, is one of the greatest arguments about trusting in traditions of men. It's not the Word of God. And we dare not put our precious souls upon anything less than that, since God himself has not done so. John Wesley famously said, God has shown us the way to heaven. He has condescended to us and he has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. I need the book that tells me how to come to glory, how to come to God, how to be saved. No self-spun web of the creature's mind, which must by definition be weak, can serve the turn. There's no good news in the ways of men. No, this is the book that opens to us the very gates of paradise. This, we find, is the door of heaven. The Bible is like the hand of God opened freely to you in written letters of his love and grace, pulling us to himself, saying, Come unto me, my creatures, my child, my handiwork. You are made in my image. And yet, we don't know that until we come and embrace him. What surety then is found in the Bible? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And yet so many, don't you see it every day, we're bombarded with it, people looking elsewhere for their stability Anywhere else. It's bizarre what people are looking for today. Is there anything so sad as that to see these eternal souls trusting in these lesser things? Here is our surety, our guarantee, our certainty. The one who has spoken worlds into existence speaks to me in his unshakable revelation, which all of it centers upon Jesus Christ, who says, Lo, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So that's our third point. We race on toward the next phrase. As Paul continues and writes, um, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience to the faith. Divinely established, gospel established, scripture established, we find now the eternal purpose of God to do all this, to give this stability. God commands this. God commands the gospel. This is not law as we usually think of law, but rather it's the idea of God's will, his purpose, his order. God himself decrees that all men everywhere repent and believe and come and find this establishment. That means this is not a suggestion to us. This is not some kind of a hope so or a maybe or a possibly. The sovereign God has commanded and makes it firm. John 6.37 says, All who will come, to, will come to him whom the Father gives to the Son. This is God's side of things. He has set apart a people for himself and no other will come. But to us it means that we will not at all be cast out who commands us to come to Him, to come to the Father through the Son. He is such a Father who cannot let us go if we come to Him 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. All who come to me, I will in no way cast out. All of us are falling by our sins. We must fall if we are sinners. But who can save such sinners? Peter on the high waves shouts out, Save, Lord! This God then commands this life to us. Ezekiel 16, I stopped and I saw her and I said, Live! Again, live! So salvation hinges on Him and not us. It is He who has communicated this so richly, so powerfully. It's as though He says to those who believe, You depend not on yourself, but Me, the God who cannot lie, the God who always speaks truth, the God who has sworn by Himself to save you, the God who withheld nothing for your everlasting good, but gave His only begotten Son, the God who has taken an oath, as it were, in the blood of His precious Son, that blood which is an atonement for our redemption, an unbreakable covenant bond. God's will is solid, brethren. It is a commanded item. I give unto them eternal life, and no one can pluck them from my hand. What tremendous truth that is. What a tremendous grip upon our lives, unworthy as we are. And what a tremendous comfort that ministers to us with all of the ups and downs of our lives. When a sinner then turns to the Lord, he finds a love waiting for him full and free. A love that did not just begin when he or she believed. A love that led him to that point. A love from the ancient past. A love from eternity. I have loved you with an everlasting love and drawn you to myself, says Jeremiah 31.3. So think about that. John says we love him because he first loved us. Oh, how he first loved us. Do you realize, believer, that there's a sense in which God has never not loved you? His love has no beginning. It is eternal like himself. What a first love indeed. So this God-centered security, gospel security, Bible security, purposed security. Now the fifth and final point is this universal call to the nations. For the obedience to the faith that goes forth to all of the, the world. Made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. This is perfect security as a free universal gift of grace. If it's by faith, it has to be by grace. The fact that the gospel is for everybody and does not distinguish according to economic differences, educational differences, privilege, caste, races, genders, etc., tells us that the gospel can save all men, all men, all from every walk of life. The gospel is for everybody, all the nations. Pentecost is for all, as it goes forth into all the world. So God commands all men everywhere to repent. Jesus returns with retribution, retribution to those who know not God, and get this phrase, who do not obey the gospel. There's a contest going on about that phrase, the obedience of faith, bringing the nations to obedience of faith. And some want to uh, remarkably interject works. I'm going, have you read the book of Romans in which you find this? 
It is all of grace. And yes, the, go- the gospel's commanded. You are sinning if you don't turn to Christ, if you don't have faith. So, the question then is, what achievement must we do then to have this stability? What must we perform to have this from God? What has to be done to gain the heavenly halls? And the answer is that it is, pure and simple, a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is all of grace, and therefore it is all of faith and not works. God commands the gospel. It is something that's done. What must I do? Obey? Obey what? Well, the gospel terms. The gospel says, put your deadly doing down and trust in Christ. Receive Him. That's what brings life and peace. I remember reading a story of a man who was seeking for peace. This is a story from the East. And he went to some kind of a guru, and the guru told him, here, try to do this. Go to this shrine. Offer this. Sacrifice this. Suffer this. And nothing brought peace. And at last he told him, he said, take off your shoes. Put stones in your shoes. And, and, and do a pilgrimage to this particular shrine. And when you, when you offer to the God there, you'll receive peace. And so this man did it. Fool that he was. And off he marches. Gets there, offers it. No peace. Takes the shoes, empties them, puts his shoes back on. Walking back, he notices a group of people standing under a tree. And there's one man with a book in his hand. And he's sharing the gospel. And he comes and listens to the truth of the good news, the glad tidings of Christ, receives Christ, and guess what? Peace that surpasses understanding. Gospel terms are receive, trust, rest in Him. When we believe upon Him, receive Him, this changes everything. It transforms us inside and out. God gives all things to bring us to Himself from first to last. Even the ability to believe, the ability to repent is of Him. And that is ultimately really great news because nobody wants to repent. You and I would not have repented. You and I would not have believed if the Holy Spirit did not open our eyes, you see. And some people get wrapped around this axle too. This is so frustrating. We call people to believe, but in the back of our mind, we know only God can give them faith. There was a gentleman who got very frustrated with a particular Calvinistic minister by the name of Benjamin Palmer. And Palmer was preaching, and this man came into his office after the service, and he was mad as a hornet, pounded the desk. He said, you Calvinists, you drive me nuts. You say and you unsay. You tell us believe on such simple terms, and then you tell us you can't believe. And the minister is sitting there listening to this, and he's writing something. And to this point, he didn't even look up. He continued to write, and he said, he looked up, and he said, well, if this really bothers you, then just believe. Just trust in the Lord. And he continued to write. And then, after a very pregnant pause, the man said, well, that's the problem. I can't. I've been trying. I've been trying to come to Christ, and I can't. My sin still has a hold on me. Then the pastor put the pen down. He said, now that's a different issue. And he led him to the throne of grace in prayer. 
And he, it says that he prayed as though this was such a unique situation that it had never happened before. Lord, here is a hardened sinner who needs a new heart. God can give those who don't feel drawn, who are, are, are not feeling the conviction of sin like they should, can bring those sinners to himself. Ask God for those things. This has got to be a part of our evangelism. When we're telling people to do things that they can't in their own power do. They look at us and they go, how can these people go to church every Sunday? I'm missing the Buffalo Bills football game right now. How can you do that? I could never do that. Yes, you can. God gives new eyes and new hearts and new lives. I would be the same as you if it weren't for the grace of God. So pray. We tell people with hardened hearts, pray to have your heart softened. Dear God, help me to see these things and have these things. They are precious beyond compare. So in this way, there's no room for our boasting. If God uh, so saves us uh, in, in a gracious, fully gracious way, he gives us faith and repentance. All the praise and honor and glory goes to God in Christ. Faith is, the, is only the foot that just by which we run to Jesus for, for life. We come to him for eternal bread, for everlasting waters. And God saves millions of people from trillions of sins unto a perfect redemption as this God is reconciled. Universal, worldwide stability on such easy terms. Believe, receive, because it is all of grace. And this last is something of the capstone of this doxology, as God's own very glory is at stake. See how wholehearted God is on his part. God is not reluctant to save sinners. God delights, there's rejoicing in heaven because God himself rejoices when one sinner repents. God is not the loser by saving sinners. There's no depletion of his majesty, but rather his majesty is exalted. Uh, There's a display of God's manifold wisdom to the whole universe when we dusty souls that we are, are redeemed. He shows us off. This is the work of my grace, to my glory, to all of the devils and to all of the angels and to all of his handiwork. God fully rejoices in this. Glory to the triune God forever and ever and ever. My friends, what will you do? What will you do without Jesus? What will you do without the gospel preached What will you do without the Bible, which is the foundation that will abide forever when everything else goes to the side? Without his will, his hand beneath you. What will you do without his grace? Is grace not one of the most precious words in all of our language? What will happen is you will, you must perish without these things. The Bible says, turn to him now. Turn to him now. Today, Christ himself invites you. In an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hear him today. Oh, hear him and live. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this doxology. It pulls our hearts heavenward. And we stand amazed, Lord, at all of the layers of the riches of your grace and goodness to us in giving us such a complete Savior, a perfect Savior for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you for how he's identified with us, bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh. We thank you, Lord, that you humbled yourself so deeply that you can rescue the worst. And yet, Lord, you are exalted to the very heights to bring us to our heavenly home. Oh, Lord, help us to be comforted by these things today and all the more encouraged to live to your glory, to live the only worthy life worth living, and that is to the majesty and glory of our King, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Father, be glorified, we pray, in our response to these things. Holy Spirit, work that good in us that we need to have worked, apart from which we are absolutely dead and helpless. Or continue to minister to us now as we approach your supper, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.